Reformed Church. So tonight, as I said before, we don't have a whole lot more messages left of the We the Temple series. Um, but the um, thing I want to share with you tonight is from Song of Solomon. And this may take us two messages to do, or three. I think two. But there's a lot of content. And my plan, this shouldn't scare anybody away from this message right now, but uh, my plan is to read the, almost the whole book of Song of Solomon. It's eight chapters, but um, we're not going to read it all tonight, but to go through the whole thing. So it'll be sort of like a commentary on the whole book going through almost. There are certain chapters I have less to say about, obviously, because you know, I'm, I'm not for just going through verse by verse in the Bible and just teaching every single verse because I don't understand every single verse. I'm going to show you what I understand, right? Of course. But, um, but anyway, we are going to go through the book of Song of Solomon, and here's why. Um, it is an amazing prophecy. I mean, as anything in the Bible, but um, especially the Old Testament. But it's an amazing prophecy of all the things that were to come, um, certain things, historical things that have already happened in sort of the gospel story and things that haven't happened yet. And it's just, it's a full timeline that will take us from the, the law, the Jews under the law, all the way to Jesus' second coming. That's in the book of Song of Solomon. And I'll, I'll show you that. We'll take our time with it. I don't want to rush through this. I don't want to, uh, you know, say things that are sort of su- superfluous to, to say and to go into, but I, I, I want to take my time also so that we, we can kind of understand everything. Um, in order to do this, though, I just want to teach for a little bit on just a few concepts. Um, not so many symbolic words necessarily, but just a few concepts that I want to go over with you. One word that you're definitely going to need to know is um, the word mountain or hill. If you go on our glossary, right, reformchurch.com slash glossary, you guys know that well. Um, let's just read two verses about the word mountain or hill. Second Samuel 22, verse 8. Um, this is going to be um, just a comparison of these two verses, just so I can prove to you that mountain or hill is a word that is symbolic for heaven in the Bible. Um, just, just these two. So 2 Samuel 22, 8, it says, um, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. So notice it says there, the foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. Now look at Psalms 18, 7. Psalms 18 is a repeating of that account we just read in, in um, 2 Samuel. It's, actually, it's the exact same account, just repeated again. Except in this account, instead of saying the foundations of heaven were moved because God was wroth, it says in Psalms 18, 7, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. Now, I, either we are going to say that that's just an error, that one account for the same account says heavens and the other one says hills, or perhaps, as is true, Hills or mountain means heaven. So that's actually why that can be used interchangeably there. Um, again, there's a lot more verses online, though, to bring you through the word mountain or hill and biblical substantiation. But it's very important that you know that that's what that means because especially when you're reading something symbolic, like a symbolic timeline, like Song of Solomon is written in symbol. It's obviously a song between Jesus and the church. But obviously it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a song between Solomon and the temple. But... Um, but it's in symbol. So because it's in symbol, you have to know what certain words mean symbolically in order to sort of decode the timeline. It really is that way. If you, when you know certain symbolic words, you can read something like Song of Solomon that's written in symbol, 
and, and you can sort of decode it. So anytime you see the word mountain in like a symbolic timeline like that, you can flip the word mountain for the word heaven, and, it, and the sentence will make sense. Um, I, I already posted online uh, for one of the messages I taught called uh, the Noah, Noah Timeline Decoded, and I, I prove what I'm telling you right now by I took the account of Noah, and if you look at our glossary and all the definitions for those symbolic words, took the timeline of Noah, and then took those certain symbolic words in Noah and just changed the word. I kept the account, the sentence structure and everything. I just changed the word, changed the word mountain for heaven, changed the word, you know, whatever, flood for the Holy Spirit, as is symbolic of the Holy Spirit in that account. Just changed the words, and all of a sudden, you were reading about Noah at first, and all of a sudden, now you're reading about Jesus, and you're reading about the baptism of the Holy Spirit all of a sudden, just by changing the words in flipping them for their symbolic counterpart. So it actually works that way. The Bible works that way symbolically, and, and there's some proof of that um, in that Noah timeline decoded. Um, I, I, would, I, would, I would want to do more of those and just take the whole text of the Bible and flip the words. Anyhow, so that's one thing. Because um, mountain means heaven, there is this concept in the Bible, even with the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, that we've talked about in the Chase Me series, which is not currently posted right now. It, it'll, it's sort of under construction right now, and it'll be back up at some point soon. But in the Chase Me series, which I've already taught, uh, the Sermon on the Mount talks about Jesus. He went up on a mountain, right? And that's actually, when you listen to that series, that's actually symbolic of how Jesus, after his first coming, he ascended back into heaven. So you could say Jesus is sitting in the mountain right now. right? That's where he is. He's in heaven right now after he ascended. And he taught his disciples many things. But it also says that as he taught his disciples, it says his disciples drew near to him. And the reason why it says that is because there's this concept in the Bible, which I want to introduce you to, and most of us know this, um, of quote-unquote following Jesus. All right? This is going to be very important for the timeline. This concept of following Jesus, what it means is that Jesus, through his death, after he died, through his death, he was raised and went to heaven. He entered into sort of the glory of heaven through his death. And actually now, through his death, we also can enter into the same things that Jesus entered into in his resurrection. We can enter into those same things. And this is actually symbolized by John 10. Uh, John 10 talks about, if you, if you read it verse by verse, which we, we went through it in that series, Chase Me series, it actually, what it describes is, Jesus as the shepherd goes through the door himself. The door represents his death, essentially. Uh, and he went through, through the door himself into this sheepfold that is said to be high up, which this sheepfold that's supposed to be high up is, actually represents heaven in John 10. So just stay with me on this. So Jesus, the shepherd, goes through his death. That's the point in which he died, the door. And then he ascends to the upper sheepfold, you could say. This is all in John 10, right? I'm not making any of this up. It actually says that there's a sheepfold that you have to quote-unquote climb up to, and that's referring to heaven. And Jesus went to this upper sheepfold through the door. But you'll also notice that after he goes to this quote-unquote upper sheepfold, the sheep, if they go through that same route, if they go through the door, if we receive Jesus' death, we can also go to the same upper sheepfold where Jesus entered. And it says that the sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice. I understand that almost everybody in the church interprets the sheep following the shepherd as sort of taking Jesus' direction. But that's not actually what it means, Okay. I understand that what's the going thing. I understand I'm pushing up against pretty much everybody else's word that I've ever heard before. But this is correct. Like, trust me. Or just listen to the series better. So the sheep are able to follow Jesus. But actually, when you kind of put all that symbolism together, what John 10 is actually talking about is that Jesus went to heaven after his death. And we that receive his death, um, 
can also enter the same heavenly things that Jesus entered into in his resurrection. Um, Ephesians 1 basically waters that down, makes it very plain by simply saying that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is toward us as well, right? You know that in Ephesians 1. That's like an expounded version of that verse. Jesus went somewhere, and we, through his death, can follow him where he went. That's, that's what John 10 is. Um, this concept of following Jesus or drawing near, as you saw even with the Sermon on the Mount, what happens? Um, particularly in John 10, just to go back, it said the sheep hear his voice, and as we hear his voice and believe him, we're able to go where he went, right? To the upper sheepfold. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on a mountain, teaches his disciples, but it specifically says his disciples or his learners. You could say those that hear his voice, because that's what disciple means. So a pupil, a student, someone who learns from you. Those that learn from Jesus, or you could say the sheep that hear the shepherd's voice, when the shepherd went up to a mountain, just like the shepherd went up to the upper sheepfold, his disciples, his learners, his quote-unquote, his sheep, drew near. And you can see they started going where Jesus went, entering into the same heavenly things that Jesus entered into, because they learn from him. The same way the sheep go where the shepherd goes because they hear from him. So there's a lot of stuff here um, that I can go through. Um, Sermon on the Mount, John 10. Yeah, basically, it, even if you throw this verse up here, and I'm, I'm going to end this little concept here with this verse. John 13.1, I'm going to start reading. It actually says in John 13.1 that Jesus knew that he was going to depart out of this world and go to the Father. He was going to depart out of the world and go unto the Father in, in John 13.1. Then if you look at John 13.36, John 13, verse 36, he ha he's having a discussion. After Jesus already knew he was going to come out of the world and go to the Father, in other words, he was going to ascend to heaven, he's talking with Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, where goest thou? Well, we know where he was going. He just said, out of the world and to the Father, right? But Peter's asking, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you can't follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. You shall follow me afterwards. That right there is the interpretation of John 10. You shall follow me afterwards. That is not referring to following Jesus' direction. Jesus was going to a destination. Where? To the Father. And he said, you can follow me. Everybody would acknowledge about this verse, that that's not talking about following Jesus' direction. But likewise, with John 10, John 10 is the symbolic version of that verse right there, that we can follow Jesus afterwards. The reason why he said you can't follow me now is because he hadn't died yet. He hadn't made the door yet, right? The Bible says that if, if you don't take the door, you're like a thief and a robber, trying to climb up to the sheepfold a different way when there's only one access to heaven, which is the door. And that's why when Jesus was crucified, for instance, he was crucified between a thief and a robber because he's the door in the middle. Thief, robber, try to climb up some other way and try to lead the sheep up, uh, try to lead the sheep as if there were access to the good things of God some other way except through Jesus. And uh, so that's why Jesus was crucified between a thief and a robber because his death is the door. He enters through his death to the upper sheepfold and where he went, we can now follow as he told Peter after he was going to establish the door being his death. So there's a lot, trust me. Hopefully, at least you can see from what I told you just now, even if you don't understand it all, you can see, okay, you know, Pastor Mike has some evidence behind this, behind saying this. It's very important that you know that there's biblical evidence for this because we're going to read about this in Song of Solomon. Um, also, so let's, let's switch concepts now. Another concept you're going to need to know is um, about morning and night. I'm going to try to go through this very quickly because we just went over this recently for those that are here. But um, 1 Thessalonians 5 basically talks about this concept of day and night, all right? If you look at our glossary, again, day and night basically means, night is a, is a period of time, uh, a period of, uh, of, of time in which there's ignorance, an ignorant time, because dark means not seeing. Night is a time of darkness. In other words, a time of no visibility, a time of not being able to see clearly, um, hence ignorance. 
day is a time of clarity, revelation, seeing, right? These are proven biblically. Um, the reason why I keep saying that is because I cannot tell you how many people talk about symbolic stuff and they don't give any footnotes for where the Bible says that. I cannot tell you. Trust me, even just researching certain things, most people say, I heard someone say something recently about, oh, feet mean travel. That's what they're symbolic of in the Bible. And it's just a perfect example of, okay, why? How do you know that? Feet are, well, because you travel with your feet? Like, is that why? Most people do it that way. I don't, I don't do it that way. We don't do it that way at this church. So I'm, just, I'm trying to tell you that there's biblical evidence for this. First Thessalonians 5 basically talks about um, how Jesus' second coming will be as a, a thief in the night. He said that we're of the day, we're not of night. He, here's the point here. Um, I won't read these things to you, but if you were to read on your own time, 1 Thessalonians 5, Romans 13, 11, uh, and 2 Peter 1, 19, you'd put all those verses together and be able to see that because night is a time of ignorance, essentially, and day is a time of clarity, seeing things clearly, um, you guys know this at this church, but every time Jesus comes to the earth, it's called another day. He's the light of the world. He's the only one that instills truth, and therefore, he's the source of all truth, the source of all wisdom to us, and therefore, the light of the world. In other words, the revealing, the revelation to the world, the wisdom of the world, you could say, the light of the world. So every time he comes to earth, it's called another morning. One was in creation, and, and um, when God created all things through Jesus, the light of the world coming to earth that way, and that was day one. And then there's evening. And then in his, his, what we call his first coming, when he came to die on the cross, he came again. And he, he, he actually referred to the time that he was in the earth, walking the earth as the light of the world, as the day. And he even told before raising Lazarus that there's 12 hours in a day. In other words, referring to the time he was there. I'm the light of the world. Walk in the light while you have the light. That's what he said. So he comes back. That's day two. And then also, he's coming back again, we know, right? In his second coming. And that's day three, in which... That will start a period of time, as we know, as the resurrection, right? This is why Jesus was raised on the third day, because it was symbolic of um, the fact that the, the time of the resurrection is actually going to happen on the quote-unquote third day, if you follow me on that, right? Creation, day one, his first coming, day two, and then the third morning, his third approach to earth in, his, in his, what we call his second coming, you know, um, is when all the dead in Christ will rise, and right, it's called the resurrection. That's why when he was, when he was risen, when he himself was risen on the third day, it's symbolic of the resurrection age happens on the quote-unquote third day. All right, So that, that's how that works. The reason why I say this to you, though, is because Jesus is the light of the world, source of all truth. Therefore, when he comes, it's a time of revelation. Right? He's the light of the world. The, the source of all wisdom has approached earth. Um, he's called the bright and morning star, like the sun. Right? And at the bright and morning star, every time the bright and, I mean, even for us, right? when the bright and morning star comes, that's the morning. Right? Oh, it's another day. And so when the bright and morning star approaches earth, it's another day, it's another day, it's another day, until the third day, which is the resurrection, right? Um, here's the thing to know. When Jesus came, even in his first coming, when he came to die on the cross, he came preaching and sharing that wisdom and sharing that revelation, right? The Bible says that he, he, any man that is enlightened is because he's enlightened by Jesus, the, the light of the world, right? So that's very true. Now Jesus, the light of the world, has gone and ascended to heaven. Now this time period that we live in right now is called the night. Uh, it's a time of ignorance. The ignorance of people in the world make it a time of night. And the light of the world has retreated to the mountain, you could say. Now, when he comes back again, that's going to be called morning again. And we know, I've taught on this from the Revealing series, when Jesus comes back a second time, the Bible says we'll all see him as he is. 
Right now we see in a mirror dimly. We don't see Jesus perfectly, but on that time every believer will know Jesus perfectly. So that's all that is true. Okay, all, everything I just told you is true. Um, we live in the time of night, a time of ignorance, when Jesus comes back in his second coming, in the resurrection, the, the quote-unquote third day. That's going to be a time where every person, every believer at least, is going to have full revelation of Jesus. Here's the point we, i got to make to you, though. If you were to read 1 Thessalonians 5, you'd know, though, that even though we dwell in an age that is called the night right now, we ourselves, it's daytime inside of us. The Bible says we are of the light. We are children of the light and children of the day because this bright and morning star that comes as the source of all revelation is actually hidden inside of us right now. So it's morning in us. Despite the ignorance of this age, we can know the truth, though. You can partake of that day. Even though when Jesus comes back in his second coming, it's going to be broad daylight, you could say, all across this entire age. Every single person is going to be able to see clearly. Every person, is, as 1 Thessalonians 5 uses this terminology, every person will wake up. Every person will see clearly. That, that's a truth. But um, despite that, we have that on the inside of us right now, and if we choose to listen to Jesus now, you can partake of that daylight, of that morning, of that, you know, you can partake of that right now. Second uh, Peter 1.19 actually says that we have the prophetic word confirmed in Second Peter 1.19. This is the New King James Version. It says, which you do well, you do well to take heed to the prophetic word. That's talking about scripture. You do well to take heed to scripture as a light that shines in a dark place. In other words, the age you live in is a dark place, right? We live in the night right now, awaiting the, the sort of the morning as far as the age is concerned. But then it says here, um, until... The day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. When you get full revelation of Jesus, right, um, that's called the morning star rising in your heart, um, the light being given fully to your heart. And again, as far as the age is concerned, the time period is concerned, when Jesus comes back again, that will be called the morning because the whole age will be filled with, the Bible says that the knowledge of the Lord will cover, in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 11, it says that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The whole age will be full of light, hence it's, it'll be morning for that age, but it's already morning for us, you, you understand, on the inside of us. And as you receive revelation, and as you get full revelation of Jesus, it's called the morning star rising in your heart. I know it's a lot of information there, but this is all really important stuff, okay? So, so we got that. Um, we live in the night right now, because we're actually in, let's see, evening, morning at creation was day one then evening, and then morning in his, um, uh, in his uh, uh, first coming at the cross was day two. So we live at the beginning of day three right now, the evening, because basically the way that the Bible does a day is evening and then morning, not morning and then evening, evening and then morning, which is why the Jews observe a day that way, evening first and then morning. So we live in the evening of the third day, and then the morning of the third day is about to to come. We're, we're still waiting for that, for the age, all right? Hopefully that makes sense, okay? If that makes a little bit of sense, just wave at me. Makes a little bit of sense? If it makes a, well, okay, at least a little bit of sense, we'll say. All right, so one more thing I want to share, and this is a very quick one, is um, that when you first receive Jesus, that's called the marriage, right? Um, when the Holy Spirit first comes on the inside of you, we're married to Jesus in our spirit right now. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17, it basically says that when, when, basically when you sleep with somebody, you become one flesh with them. And that's actually a marriage covenant you're making with them, okay? 
Um, like you, you can't sort of say, well, you know, I didn't really make a covenant with that person. I just slept with them. I didn't like put a ring on their finger. But there's, the ring is not where the covenant comes from. The covenant is becoming one flesh with somebody. So you may not have put a ring on somebody's finger, but if you sleep with someone, you, you are supposed to take the responsibilities of a husband or a wife now with them. Okay? The ring, though, just so you know, don't get around the ring. If you're a guy, as they say, put a ring on it. If you're not willing to do that, that shows uh, that you're not willing to take the responsibility. But really, truthfully, the covenant is sleeping with somebody. That's really what it is. Come one flesh. But we're one spirit with the Lord. On the inside of us, we're exactly like Jesus now, and we're one spirit with him, as it says in verse 17 there. We're one spirit with the Lord, so that means our spirit is married. And our body is not married yet, um, because we're, we don't bear the full likeness of Jesus yet. Our body's still being transformed. But inside of us, we are one spirit with the Lord. We're married. Um, so that being said, this is actually why, if you guys listened to earlier in this temple series, the water to wine timeline, if you listen to that, that timeline, you would see that um, everybody knows about when Jesus turned water into wine. He did that at a wedding, right? What people don't know, most of the time, is that that's symbolic of when we first received Jesus. I won't go into the whole thing, but you guys know, we already taught it in this series, that when the water was put in the water pot, which is a symbol of how the Spirit is put into our earthen vessel. When the Spirit comes into our earthen vessel, that's our marriage with Jesus. That's why if you actually even look at it in um, uh, John 2, 2, the only people that it mentions that were invited to the wedding were Jesus and his disciples. Because symbolically, if you read it symbolically, what it's representing, not what it was historically, but what it's representing, it's actually representing the marriage between us and Jesus. That's why it says the, those that were invited to the wedding are Jesus and his disciples. And what do you know, at this wedding, quote-unquote, between Jesus and his disciples, the water pots get filled with water. Of course, it manifests afterwards as wine, and it's drawn out, but it gets filled with water. So when you receive the Lord into your vessel, this is very important, when you receive the Lord into your vessel, that's you marrying Jesus. Now you're one spirit with him. Okay, cool? That makes sense? Whenever your body bears the full likeness of Jesus, then your body will also be married to the Lord as well, which he talks about in Revelation. But for right now, our spirit is married to the Lord. All right, those are our concepts. We're done with the concepts right now. So now that we know all that stuff, um, I want to read you a little story, and then we're going to start reading Song of Solomon. So here's, here's the little story here. Um, just some points. This is the gospel story, essentially. And as I go through this, I want you to check in your mind whether you agree with this or not, all right? which you should, because this is biblical. Um, that under the law, the Old Testament law, the Jews were working. Obviously, it was thou shalt, thou shalt not, right? Um, obviously, there were many Jews that did put faith in Jesus, many Jews that even saw that all the works of the law, that they could never be made righteous or they could never receive from God by the works of the law. There were many Jews, even under the law, that saw that, and therefore they did enjoy some new covenant benefits ahead of time, right? You know that. Um, uh, lots and lots of the, the, the Old Testament prophets that you read about are those Jews. They were under the law where work was given, but they realized, I can't do this, I need Jesus, which is the purpose of the law. Obviously, Jesus finally came down from heaven, right? He is, or from the mountain, you could say, to pay for and to provide all that grace that the Jews were expecting all this time, right? Uh, Jesus did come, as the Jews, or certain Jews were expecting. Uh, then Jesus obviously died, and then he returned to heaven after his resurrection, right? which is kind of where we're at right now. Uh, after his ascension, though, just after his ascension, the disciples didn't see him for a little bit, right? He went to, to heaven. John 14, 19 kind of talks about this. Uh, you can look it up on your own time, but uh, they didn't, the, the, he wasn't, phys Jesus was not physically seen for that stretch of time at, at, or, or after he ascended. But 
Um, we know that in Acts 2, they did receive Jesus back in a way because they received his spirit in Acts 2. So Jesus sort of came back, you could say, not his flesh. His flesh, he was still not physically seen. His disciples still didn't physically see him, but his spirit came and lived on the inside of their house, you could say. The word house, if you look at our glossary, is also symbolic of our flesh. On the inside of our house or inside of our tent. Uh, and then what happened was, because uh, obviously we know that's the day that Jesus married us, as we just said. They became one spirit with Jesus. Um, Jesus is now our brother. That the Bible calls Jesus our brother now, because we're the same as him on the inside. He's also called our husband now, because we're one spirit with him. The Holy Spirit now indwells us. And now as we believe, after we've received the spirit, he, he becomes a fountain in us, right? And manifests things through us now. That's how this works. We know that we currently live in a time period, as we just said, called the night. Jesus, we are expecting currently Jesus' second coming, which is called the morning. That'll be a day of full revelation. Not that you have to wait for that day to get revelation, of course. You can, I'm going to use the Song of Solomon term. You can wake up whenever you please, okay, to use the Song of Solomon term. You can wake up at any point in time, but every Christian will see Jesus as he is, as 1 John says, when he comes back. We're expecting that, though. That's where we're at right now. We're expecting Jesus' second coming. Um, and uh, anyway, that's it. That, 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 I guess that, that, that's the end there. Is that, uh, of course, we can be sober-minded and awake now, but we are expecting Jesus' second coming now. That's like the gospel story. Christians more or less agree with most of that, right? Th those events happening. Th those events that I just read you, though, are in the Song of Solomon timeline, and that's what we're going to go through as we read through it. All those events are covered in the Song of Solomon timeline. It's amazing, right? I I'm, I I'm, I'm interested in, in talking to some Jewish people at some point, too, because uh, it's funny. They, 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 they don't believe in Jesus, but then they agree with, with this, or so they say. And if you show them, it's pretty awesome that it represents Jesus. So let's read Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. Tonight, I'm not going to be able to get through a whole lot because I, 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 I used up half my time already. But um, we're going to just read as much as we can, and then I'm just going to stop, and then we're just going to pick it up next week. Okay, that, that's how it's going to go. I don't know how far we're going to be able to get. Song of Solomon 1, 1, all the way from the beginning. Keep in mind everything we've been talking about this entire temple series is going to be very applicable and everything I just told you. This is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And of course, Solomon is a picture of Jesus. We went over that early, early on in the series. Solomon is a picture of Jesus. We also know that as he is singing to this woman in this book and the woman singing back to him, this sort of like song between the two is really the woman is the temple itself, which represents us. The woman is the church but the qualities that he names of the woman are identifiable as elements in the temple, which we've been through. So this is then the woman speaking back to Solomon here, or speaking to Solomon. It says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the savor of your good ointments, your name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love you. Of course, I'm going to just read through anything I don't fully understand. I'm just going to keep reading, of course. It says, draw me, and we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers, and we will be glad and rejoice in you, and we will remember your love more than wine. The upright love you. Clearly, this is talking about a believer so far, right? You've got that. The upright rejoice in you and remembering your love and all that stuff. This is talking about a believer who is remembering the love of the Lord. And Okay, so that's what you see so far. What I'm about to show you, though, is this is taking place in the Old Testament. Now, some of that proof is in the verses we're about to read, some of that proof is going to be in the later chapters, all right? But for now, look at verse 5. 
the woman here says, she's called the Shulamite in this book, says, I am black but comely but beautiful. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, look not on me because I am black, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me, and they made me the keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. Okay, so let's pause now. This is describing the Old Testament. Now, part of how I know that is because of the verses themselves, which I'll, I'll show you. Part of, the other part of how I know that is because in the following chapter, I believe it is, is a representation of Jesus' first coming, okay, when he came down from heaven. Because of that, if, because I'm solid on that, I know that anything that happens before that is clearly the Old Testament, right? Or, or at least pre-Christ. Now, one clue, that, so that's one huge clue, that's probably the biggest clue of why this is the Old Testament, is because we're about to read in the following chapter that Jesus comes down for the first time, all right? But aside from that right now, it also represents her as working here. It says that she's made the keeper of the vineyard, and she's not keeping the vineyard. I don't know what the vineyard thing and all that represents right now, but she's clearly working and not doing a good job at her work, because she says that my own vineyard I haven't kept, even though I was entrusted with working on this vineyard. She says I'm black, she says but beautiful, um, and she, this is not like a melanin thing here, this is just talking about uh, her being in the sun. And it says that uh, it says uh, she, she's black but comely in verse 5, and then in verse 6, it says, I'm black because the sun has looked upon me. I don't know the specific symbolic nature of all those words, but I do know that she's describing being in the sun, clearly, and working on a vineyard, and also not doing a good job at her work. All right? Very, very important, because those are qualities of the law. And of course, if the first coming of Christ is, is still to come in this Song of Solomon, you know we're in, we're in the law period here. People working and people not doing a good job at their work pre-Christ. Um, Acts 7.53 basically says the same thing. Um, but, um, you know, before you even go there, though, sorry to mess you guys up back there, let me point one more thing out to you. She, she does say she's working, right? And she's not doing a good job at it. But also notice this, another thing, another quality of the law was wrath. Specifically, she, she says her mother's children were angry with her. All right? Were angry with her um, and, because she, she hasn't kept her vineyard. She hasn't kept the work she was entrusted with, and therefore there's wrath because of it. If you don't know, which you can throw up Acts 7.53 now, the whole mother's children thing, I don't know who the mother of the Shulamite is exactly. I have an inkling, but it's not worth me telling you that because I'm really not sure. But this is referring to the angels under the law. I'll give you a, a little bit of proof for that now. But the time of the law, which this is, pre-Christ's first coming, was a time of work and, of course, a time of, of wrath against those that didn't keep that work, which is everybody. Now, what you have here is, though, it specifically is her mother's children. And the law, a lot of people don't know this. It is clearly said in Scripture, but the law was given and run by angels, not by God directly. All right? Um, even when you see punishment happen, if you ever see into the spiritual realm, if it gives you any insight into the spiritual realm in the Bible as to um, uh, what's happening, you always see an angel carrying out the punishment. It was given by the voice of an angel. It was run by angels. It actually says that in Acts 7.53, it says, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. That's literally what Song of Solomon is saying there. Um, you can go back to Song of Solomon now, 1.6. But she was given, entrusted something which she had not kept. 
And literally, that's what Acts 7 says the law is. It says that she, um, uh, 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 well, Acts 7 specifically says that it was given by angels and hadn't kept it. And therefore, the mother's children there in Song of Solomon is referring to the angels. Because you notice that even the wrath is carried out by her mother's children. Um, I guess, again, I don't really know what her mother represents. I don't know if it's God. I don't know. I'm not sure. But, um, but that's what that's talking about here. So she's doing work, not doing the work well enough, anger against her for this. Um, one more ver- uh, passage I want to bring you to here is uh, Galatians 4.1. Also speaks about uh, the law. Talking about the Jews under the law here in Galatians 4.1. And we read this recently, but it says, Now I say that the heir, this is talking about the Jews, the ones that were heirs, uh, as long as he is a child or an infant, that means lacking knowledge, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. To just sum that up as quickly as possible, it's describing the work of the Jews. That's why it says they differ nothing from a servant. They lack knowledge of Jesus and the inheritance given to them through Jesus, and they differ nothing from a servant under the law. But notice this. It says, but, in verse 2, is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. I'm going to drop this on you, but this is not going to be able to be proven tonight because time is just running through my fingers tonight here. So I'm going to teach on this further in my next series, probably called Peace with God or something like that. Knowing that the law was run by angels, when he says, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed up by the Father, he's talking about the angels there. Under the law, that they were under tutors and governors. Not a covenant run by God directly. Not a covenant given through Jesus like the new covenant, but the old covenant given uh, by angels, run by angels. The angels were the accusers. The angels were the carrying out of punishment. All of that. It was by angels. But this tutors and governors here, notice in verse 1, It specifically says, as long as the heir is a child. So it's saying the Jews are children. That's a symbolic word. The word infant there means lacking knowledge. All right? As long as he's lacking knowledge, the Jews lacked knowledge of Jesus, and therefore, because they were under the Old Testament, they didn't differ anything from a servant, just serving God and working for God, though they be Lord of all. So they're infants, right? Which means lacking knowledge. Now go to the next verse again. It says, and they were under tutors and governors. So they're lacking knowledge of Jesus, therefore they're doing service to God, and they're under tutors and governors, which is the angels here. Further confirmation of that is verse 8. Verse 8 basically says the same thing over again. Verse 8 says that, uh, how be it then when you knew not God? Now isn't it interesting? When you knew not God, that's talking about them being infants. Infants, right? Because remember he said the Jews are children or infants, and they were under tutors and governors. Here it says, when you knew not God, he's saying the same thing over again, infants, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. That is talking about the angels. All right? I know a lot of people, probably maybe not people here, but because I'm not going to give you a full amount, all the verse I have on this, um, people may have doubts about that, but uh, that's, that's the truth. Those that are gods but not by nature are the angels because, um, man, I could tell you a whole lot about that. That's why the devil's called God of this world, even though he wasn't created to be God of this world, but he is now because Adam gave him that authority. That's why it's calling the angels by, that, that are by nature no gods. He's not talking about idols or something there. He's talking about angels, um, that they are gods, but not by nature. They weren't created to be so. And that they're the tutors and governors of the law, the ones that, that the law was given through, 
and they are the mother's children, all right, that were angry, the, carrying, the ones that carried out punishment in Song of Solomon 1.6, that carried out the punishment, that were angry with the Shulamite, with that woman, um, because she wasn't keeping her vineyard. She wasn't, that's, again, Acts 7 again, right? You receive the law by disposition of angels, and you have not kept it. That's literally what it's saying in Song of Solomon. So let's, let's keep going. So anyway, verse 6. She's working, says she's in the sun. My mother's children were angry with me, and they made me keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. The more you understand about the background of what I just shared with you, the more clear that becomes, that what's, what that's representing. But let's keep going. Verse 7. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves. Let's pause there. This is going to take us a while. <laughs> o you whom my soul loves. So um, clearly this is in the Old Testament. But this is actually a believer in the Old Testament who recognizes that they have not kept the law. All right? It's, this is going to get clearer and clearer as we keep going. Notice she says that her soul loves Solomon. This literally is referring to faith. Faith in the Bible, if you've heard our obedience of faith teaching, um, you know that it's called loving the Lord with your soul. That's, that's what faith is. So this is clearly a believer. We already know that from the background we already saw that this person is rejoicing in the Lord, but they recognize I haven't done my work. My mother's children were angry with me. She refers to Jesus here as you whom my soul loves. The Jews in the past knew about Jesus. They didn't necessarily call him by the name Jesus. They was just the Messiah, but they knew about the Lord and believed in the same Jesus that we preach today. And as Deuteronomy says, loving the Lord with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, that's actually faith. So it says, you whom my soul loved, which is referring to believing in Jesus. Watch this. She asks Jesus, where do you feed? Where feedest and where do you make your flock to rest at noon? For why should I be as one that's turned aside by the flock of your companions? So not only is she working, when she realizes that she can't keep her own vineyard and that she's under wrath because she's not keeping the work entrusted to her by her mother's children, which are the angels here, she then seeks out rest, which is obviously the, the ultimate conclusion that the law was supposed to bring you to, right? God's solution to our inadequate strength, our inadequate work, is rest. In the New Covenant, now it's come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. In the Old Testament, is you shall, you shall not, right? So she sees she hasn't kept her vineyard, her work. She sees the wrath that is um, appropriate for her works and says, Solomon, you whom my soul love, the one that I believe on, where do, you make, where do you feed your flock and where do you make it rest? We've been through a lot of stuff in the past, but you know the temple actually looks like a sheep lying down by a river, right, um, resting and feeding from the river, feeding on fruit from the river. Isaiah 55 says, why do you labor? That's rest. And it also says to feed from the river, come to the waters and eat. Do you see eating and feeding? That, those are qualities that the Bible talks all through the Bible um, of the Lord's sheep. So she's asking the Lord, I've been working, I've been in the sun. Again, not sure what that means symbolically, but I've been in the sun, I've been working, I've been, not been doing a good job, they've been angry at me, so where do you feed your flock? I'd rather feed and rest. Those are two qualities that the Bible talks about all through Scripture. Um, the temple represents it. David talks about, um, in, in Psalm 23, talks about the Lord and says that he's the sheep of the Lord. The Lord is his shepherd. He has no lack. It says that the Lord prepares a table before him, that's the feeding, and leads him by quiet waters, waters, which is the Holy Spirit that quiets him. So he's, he's being quieted, and he's resting, and he's eating and receiving. These are all qualities of, um, of uh, the Lord's sheep, and she's asking Solomon for that. Where do you make your, your flock to rest? 
um, and feed. So they continue in verse 8. If you, know, if you know not, O thou fairest among women, go your way by the footsteps of the flock and feed your kids, your sheep, beside the shepherd's tents. I don't know what by the shepherd's tent means and stuff, but basically she's saying that she can feed her and her sheep specifically um, by the shepherd's tents, whatever that means. But she's asking where he feeds his flock and makes it rest. Um, verse 9. I've compared you, O my love, this is Solomon speaking to her, to a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are comely with jewels, your neck with chains of gold. Again, we've been through this in the past, but he, you're going to start seeing qualities of the temple here. This is somewhere around the neck of the temple, and you know right around here, right? Chains of gold were right here. So he's describing her as uh, her neck having chains of gold. And this is the head of the temple, and that's the belly of the temple, and that would be right around the neck area there. So, um, and that's where it says that the ch chains roundabout were hung in the temple. So he is talking to the, to the temple, to his church here. Uh, so let's keep going. Verse 11. It says, We will make you borders of gold and studs of silver. Uh, I don't know what that means, but you notice gold and silver there, elements of the temple at least. And it says, While the king sits at his table, she's speaking to Solomon, while the king sits at his table, my spike nard sends forth the smell thereof. She's talking about like aromatics here. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night between my breasts. We went over that as well that the altar of incense literally is um, these side posts we said represent the breasts of the temple, and there's literally an altar of incense between the breasts of the temple. Okay, So that's what she's describing. She's describing herself as the temple, the altar of incense there. We've got all that behind us. She says, my beloved, let's see where, where we are here. This is um, now verse 14. My beloved is unto me a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are fair, my love. Solomon speaking to her. You are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. And, of course, this trails back to the, uh, the cherubim eyes that you see. Um, I don't know if I, if I have it for you. The uh, cherubim eyes in this room here. The cherubim are the eyes of the temple. And she says dove's eyes, which are basically the um, word she's using for these winged cherubim here as the eyes of the temple. So, clearly, it's still the temple speaking or Solomon speaking to his temple here in verse 15. Let's go to verse 16. Behold, you are fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. So we've been through this as well. We know that the, the temple, um, this little thing around the temple is the bed of, it's called literally in the building of the temple. If you look at the word, it's called the couch or the bed of the temple. And she's saying that she has a bed. And particularly, she says our bed is green. So not only, watch this, she was working before, right? She's working She's working hard, not doing her work under wrath. She's asking Solomon, where can I rest and where can I feed instead, instead of doing this work? And that's like the transition here uh, from work to these sort of more new covenant um, privileges that she's talking about. And then she says, our bed is green. So that's just adding to the whole sheep symbolism here. Her, she's, what she's seeking from Solomon is to feed from him instead of working for herself, to rest, and it says our bed is green, which is like that sort of green pasture symbolism. Our bed is green, and this is the bed of the temple. The temple has a bed as well, which is supposed to resemble the sheep by rivers of water lying down on this bed. She's, so we've been through that, though, in the past. Um, that reference, if you want the reference where it calls this the bed, that's uh, 1 Kings 6.5. But anyhow, let's keep going. Verse 17, the beams of our house are cedar, 
uh, and our rafters are of fir. We know those are characteristics of the temple. 1 Kings 6.15 actually says that. 1 Kings 6.15 says that. But let's keep going through this. We have a few more minutes left. So just stay with me a few more minutes here. Um, all that, though, should solidify you so far, even more so in the fact, okay, this is the temple speaking to Solomon. She's being described with elements of the temple. Now look at this. Chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just reading straight through. We're on chapter 2 now. She says, I'm the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Actually, sorry, this is, um, this, this is now Solomon speaking to her. So is my love among the daughters. And watch this. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. Describing Solomon like an apple tree. And she says, I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So you can see that this Old Testament saint, because we're still in the Old Testament right now, this Old Testament saint recognized her need for Jesus in that she couldn't do the work. Asked him where he made his flock to rest at noon and to feed her instead. And now what you see her doing is she's sitting down now instead of working as before. Now, I don't know what this means, but she was in the sun before and now she says she's under his shadow. I don't know what that particular part means, but nevertheless, you do see a change there. She's sitting down under his shadow with great delight and his fruit is sweet to my taste. That means that she's feeding from him. And again, you know the past. I don't have to go over all that again. We've been through that in particular in this series about feeding from Jesus and resting. And that's what she's actually doing right now. But this is still the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament saint receiving this rest from the Lord, as many saints did. Uh, verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house, again, feeding. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Let's keep reading verse uh, 5. Stay, with me, stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, uh, for I am sick of love. I, I don't know if apples maybe has something to do with comfort or rest. But his, his left hand is under my head. His right hand does embrace me. Here is where this is going to, I'm going to have to close up fairly soon here, believe it or not. But verse 7 now, let's take a little pause on verse 7. This is a very important point. Um, let's specifically change to the literal standard version for this um, verse because it's more accurate on like several different levels here. Look at what she says now. Old Testament saint still. She's receiving rest that she sought out because she wasn't, um, her work wasn't up to par here. But she says, or, or actually, this is Solomon now speaking here in verse 7. I have adjured you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the rows and the does of the field. Do not stir up nor wake the love until she pleases. Very important. And this is more going to be important for the future when we read this, but you're going to have to remember this. This means that she's sleeping right now. Because he's telling the daughters of Jerusalem here, he says, don't wake her up until she pleases. Showing us a few things. One, that it's her choice when she wakes up. And we're going to see that as we go through this. But she is sleeping. The word sleep, if you were to read 1 Thessalonians 5, remember that chapter I was giving you before about the night and darkness, and we're not of the night you know, or of darkness, we're of the day. It also says that we should be sober and awake because we're of the day. In other words, we, we, the whole age may not be in the day right now, that's still to come, but right now, despite the fact that we're in the night, we have the day on the inside of us, and we should be awake and sober. So being awake or sober is referring to clarity of your mind. You're seeing things clear, clearly. You, uh, there's revelation there. When you're sleeping, 
that's likened to drunkenness in the Bible, and it basically means you're not conscious, you're not aware of something when you're sleeping. All right? Um, you can look at 1 Thessalonians 5 for that. So, with that said, it's important to note that she's sleeping right now, which means in this book that she lacks knowledge, therefore. There are things she is not aware of. She's sleeping. She is not fully sober or awake here. But Solomon is interested in her waking up, but simply tells the daughters of Jerusalem, which I don't know who they represent right now, but telling them, don't wake her up until she pleases. In other words, it is up to her when she wakes up. So as we go through this, you'll notice the knowledge of the church the ability for us to understand the Lord and therefore manifest things in our lives is as we please, all right? Despite the fact that there are things that we don't know right now, which means that to that degree, your mind is sleeping, but you're waking up to things. The Lord is showing you things. We're receiving revelation. To that degree, there's light in your mind. To that degree, you're seeing clearly, but that is as we please, all right? Don't, don't receive the lie that says, well, we just can't know these things right now or God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts because that was written to a wicked man in Isaiah 55. Um, nevertheless, just take note that she's sleeping here. Let's just keep going. Let's at least get through. Right now, this is the first coming of Jesus we're about to read right now. So all this has happened pre-Jesus coming. And now, in verse 8. Remember, we already have the proof of her working and all that stuff to show that this is, uh, and she's under her mother's children, quote-unquote, in her work, to show characteristics of the law. But here's the biggest proof that what we were just reading is the law. Verse 8. The voice of my beloved, um, when you see the word beloved, she uses that word for, for Solomon or for Jesus here. Behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains and skipping upon the hills. This is describing Solomon as if he were coming to her from the hills. This is literally, this is exactly what Jesus did. When you know that hill, as we just read before this um, message, when you know that that represents heaven and we're reading something symbolic, clearly in Song of Solomon, this is saying that her beloved, which is Solomon, representing Jesus, was coming to her from heaven, from the hills. This is his first coming. Now this matches up, right? We, already, we, we know the timeline. You guys have, I've already read to you the sort of gospel story plainly before. And you know that this fits the timeline, right? Of historically, the law was before Jesus' first coming. When Jesus came and died, he put away the law as an old covenant now, right? So this is already making sense in the timeline which is further confirmation of its validity. So she, he's coming also down a mountain. That's exactly what Jesus did. He, he descended down the mountain to come to us, that, in the true mountain. Um, he says, my beloved is like a roe or a young heart, which basically means like a, um, like a, a stag and a gazelle. Uh, below, uh, behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. I don't know what that means, but it gives me an impression that it's almost like uh, uh, Jesus is, somehow looking at the temple, because she describes our wall and windows and lattice like she's describing herself as a building. And because, again, this is the temple sort of speaking here. And so Jesus, her beloved, it says, stands behind her wall and looks forth at the windows. So it's almost like he's looking at her through the windows or something. But it's interesting that she's describing herself seemingly as a building here, because we know that's correct from our temple series behind us. Verse 10. My beloved spake and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. I'll visit that in a second. For lo, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds is come. The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vine 
Uh, vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. I'll, this is packed. I'll probably have to end with this particular passage here. I thought I was going to get a little bit further tonight, but this is really good. So, so look at this here. This is, this is just really, really packed. Let's start with verse 11. Verse 11, he comes down the hill. If you don't also know this, I know it's a lot of information, but if you come to this church, just come to this church for a while, you're going to hear me or Pastor Jose say one of these things at some point or another um, and teach on this more fully. Jesus' first and second coming, um, as much as it's called on, on the morning, it's also called the former and the latter rain. That's what the Bible says that even in the book of James, it says that currently right now we're like farmers waiting, waiting for the latter rain. In other words, the second coming of Jesus. When something comes down from heaven, it's called rain. Even when in Sodom and Gomorrah, when, when, when uh, the, the, the uh, wrath was poured out from heaven, it's called, it was rained down on heaven, or rained down from heaven. When manna was given, it's called the manna raining down from heaven. When Jesus comes down, he's the rain. All right? This says, now the rain, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. This, what this means is, Jesus came down the mountain, but now he says the rain is over and gone, which now this is referring now to his ascension now. He descended from the mountain, and now this is referring to now I'm ascending. This particular passage we're reading here is like Jesus like in the middle of his ascension back to heaven now. I'm gonna, I'll prove that to you, and that'll probably be the last thing I do prove to you. But he's, he's kind of, the rain has come and gone. So let me show you a verse in Isaiah 55.10. This actually is referring to Jesus. And notice that he said the winter is past, the rain has come and gone. That means he has already come as the former rain, and now he's leaving uh, and, and ascending again. Isaiah 55.10, though, this is referring to Jesus. And it says, as the rain comes down in the snow from heaven, kind of like rain in winter, right? And returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it, what? Bring forth and bud. That's talking about Jesus has furnished to us all his blessings to manifest through from us, to bring forth and bud. Then it says that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11, so shall my word be. Jesus, as the word of God, is being referred here as someone, as rain that comes down. And then it says here, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. That is referring to Jesus. It, says, it shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In other words, this quote-unquote word that God sends here got sent and came back. But it said it won't return unto me, until it prospers in the thing to which I sent it. What was that thing that, to which Jesus was sent? To furnish to us the blessings of God to manifest, through to, to manifest through us. In other words, the bringing forth and budding. To furnish us these particular blessings, this particular grace, and then return successfully to the Father. Take note of that. This quote-unquote word that is sent here, return to the Father after having prospered. So, what's he called here? The rain, the snow, coming down, watering the earth, and then returning after furnishing those blessings. Now, let's go back to Song of Solomon. And like I said, I'm probably closing here. Um, Song of Solomon, uh, what chapter are we in here? Chapter 2? Do we know? 2, thank you very much. 2, verse, um, verse 11. So when he says the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, okay, this makes sense, right? The word that was sent as the rain to, 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 to prosper. What was the purpose of the rain in Isaiah 55? Was to make it bring forth in bud. That's God, that was Jesus' whole point in coming, was not just so that you'd have spiritual blessings inside of you, so that you could enjoy it in your body, so you could enjoy it in your life, manifestly bringing forth and budding. As we know from our past temple series, that's what that means, manifestation, right? That was his purpose. Jesus accomplished that purpose on your behalf, to furnish to you every spiritual blessing to manifest forth through you. And notice what happens. He says, it says that Jesus, or Solomon, came down from the mountain to her, but then the, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. He's returning 
to the Father, but he doesn't go without having succeeded, right? He doesn't go without having caused it to bring forth in bud. And what does it say about Solomon here? Specifically, it says, Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. Verse 12, the flowers appear on the earth. This is literally, you're reading Isaiah 55. You know this is referring to the word that God sent here, which is Solomon. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds has come. The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Verse 13, the fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vine with the tender grapes give a good smell. You see all that. He's saying, I have now furnished to you the manifestation of all these blessings. I have provided. Now, therefore, the rain is going now. It has come, and it is gone now. The winter, the snow, has come, and it's gone now. As Isaiah 55 prophesied would happen of Jesus. So it's prophesying here, before Jesus ever came, that this is what Solomon, our Solomon, would accomplish. Jesus called himself the greater Solomon. And this is what we're reading right now. Um, let's give you, um, let's look at verse 10. Like I said, I just got like a couple minutes here. Verse 10, my beloved spake and said unto me, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away. Here's the super, super important part here. Okay. Where was Jesus going? Back to the mountains. We're going to read that in just one second. He came down the mountains. He accomplished as the rain as the snow, he accomplished what he needed to accomplish, furnished those blessings. He went back, but this is like in the middle of the ascension, okay? And here's why I'm saying this. He's like in the middle of the ascension here, and he says, I'm going away, the rain is going, and now he says here, come away. Isn't that such an interesting thing for those that understand uh, the following Jesus concept? Very interesting, that when Jesus left this particular time, he says, come away, as in, now you can come with me. Very interesting. This is not going to mean a whole lot to people that haven't heard the Chase Me series or haven't heard that concept taught before at this church, but it's very important, though, you know that because this is an invitation from Solomon to her that he is not only going to the mountain, but now, see, the first time he was in the mountain, this wasn't said. He came down, you know, he was in the mountain this whole time through chapter one, you could say. He comes down the mountain to her. Now that the price has been paid, because we know he came down the mountain to die for us, once that price has been paid and these blessings have been furnished, he says, now you can go where I'm going now. Now where I go, you can be also. Now where I'm entering, sheep, you can follow also. Now I'm going to the mount and my disciples, my pupils can draw near also. He tells her to come away. And that come away invitation, if you have the background to understand this, which we do at this church, um, that's an invitation to follow him where he's going. He's going to the mountain. He's, asking, he's telling her, you can come away with me though. Very cool. It's very, very cool. And here, here's, um, let's just finish up this thought. Verse 14, I'm just going to skip it for the sake of time in verse 15, because I don't understand much of it anyway. Uh, let's go straight to verse 16 for the sake of time to finish the thought. So he, he, he's ascending now. He says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. We'll, we'll teach more on that particular point later. Watch this. Until the daybreak and the shadows flee away, Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. This is literally her saying, you came down the mountain to me, turn and go to the mountain again. She's, she's literally like telling him now, okay, now you're going to go to the mountains again. He came down, furnished, making things bring forth in bud, furnished those blessings, and now you go back. Now you return not there, you know, void. You accomplish what you came to accomplish. Now return. But now he returns with the invitation to her of, come away with me. And we get to enter the things that Jesus entered into. Um, specifically, though, as much as she does say in this verse, in verse 17, um, to, where does it say here? 
uh, turn, my beloved, or like turn back, go back, and be you like a young uh, roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. So that's his ascension. She's telling him, okay, now, you can go now. But notice, though, only until the daybreak and the shadow flee away. You see that? That is literally saying until you come again, until the day breaks. In other words, until the next morning. Because you, 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 see, you see how important it is to have this background of understanding what God calls what? She's saying, you came down to the mountain to me. You furnished all these blessings to me. Thank you. I also now have the invitation of coming away with you now. Now I know you're going back and you're ascending. So you go ahead and, and ascend. That is until the daybreak and the shadows flee away. Or as we said before, as the morning star, until the morning star rises in our hearts, all that, right? Um, and she's referring to his second coming now. So next week, what we'll do is we'll continue reading through. We're going to read about the, um, the receiving of the Spirit. This happens. You would expect it to happen next, right? Because after Jesus' ascension, wasn't long after Acts 2 happened, right? And guess what? It's just about the next event that happens in this is the receiving of the Spirit. Solomon comes down in sort of a different form. It, it, it's awesome. <laughs> I can't say, like, God is just so awesome. I wrote this stuff down. And uh, the fact that, you know, we can read this and be confirmed in the things that we believe, even the things that we have learned uh, uh, by prophecies like this is just, just amazing. It really is amazing. Um, but with, with that said, um, where, where was I here? The, sh- the, 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 the day breaking, the shadows fleeing away. I just leave you with this point, too. That means that now that he's ascending, as far as the age is concerned, when we read from here on out in the book, it's, it's nighttime now. And she does say that it's night later on, we'll, we'll read. She, she confirms the fact that now it's nighttime, in the age that is. But remember, we can walk in the day. We have the light on the inside of us, but as far as the age is concerned, it is nighttime. And um, there's some very interesting things that, uh, that happen uh, along the way here. Let me just make sure I'm good here, because I just don't want to leave anything off. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5 is a great chapter to read for confirmation on the whole until the daybreak stuff and all that. And I think we're good there. I think we're good there. Like I said, we will pick up in chapter 3, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, all that stuff. It is like explicitly said. You do see though here, right? Just, um, I am done now. But you do see though here, right, why once, like, like in my mind, I'm looking at this, once I'm solid on the fact that that's Jesus' first coming, right? Like, that is a perfect descriptor of his first coming. Further confirmation of the fact that it's his first coming are all the events that follow. Like, not only, as you're reading Song of Solomon, as we read this together, not only is each event descriptive of the event properly to the way it should be symbolically, which proves itself, but its place in the whole timeline of Song of Solomon further confirms that that is correct. That's why I told you, one of the ways you know that this is the time of the law when she's working for her mother's children and not doing the work well enough and then being angry at her is the fact that I know his first coming happens next. Therefore, it tells me this is pre-Christ, this is the Old Testament. So there's a lot to be uh, said, and we will get through all of it, but it may just take us uh, another message or two. We hope you enjoyed this message from Reform Church. If you have, please share this with someone else and help us get this uncommon truth out to the world. If you'd like to support this good news, you can do so at reformchurch.com give.
Also on our website, you can take advantage of our free messages, articles, and even full discipleship courses. Start reforming your mind now at reformchurch.com.